Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Can we all stand together? As we stand together, if you would stand and hold the communion elements in your hand. Don't open them, just hold them. I also wanted to let everyone know March is famous for March Madness for basketball. But more importantly than that, the third week of March is the National Wrestling Tournament. So just wanted to put that out there. Every time we gather as a church family, And this morning specifically, we're going to be taking a look at kingdom and cross. We always pray the Lord's Prayer together. So let's do that out loud, and then you'll greet your neighbor. This then is how you should pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses is we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Turn. No, wait a minute. Let me read another passage. What does the cross say about the kingdom of God? We've been taking a look at that for the past several weeks and will next week as well. As we prep for communion... I just want to read the text. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The sermon last week looked completely at the Lord's death. Reading on, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29, Paul goes on to say, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. With that in your mind, greet your neighbor. Give them a high five, hug, fist bump, handshake, (laughs) greet one another. You may be seated. So I know some of you may have already opened up the bread and the cup. Just hold it carefully. The reason why we're going to take an in-depth look at Jesus' death again this week is we would like to be able to take communion the way the Lord calls us to. It was fascinating to watch you guys go from reading about God's judgment on you and then greeting your neighbor. Big mood switch. But the truth of it is, Paul does warn us that we are to take of the bread and drink of the cup 
and not in an unworthy manner, which means irreverent. So literally could mean irreverent manner. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a very brief biblical tour and we're going to look at Jesus' death again. Last week we looked at his death. This week we're going to look at the cross. That emblem, implement of his death. And so, not that it's a warning, but this is going to be a biblical journey. It'll be brief, but I want us when we break the bread and drink the cup to understand the cross and what we are commemorating, and therefore we will never take it in an unworthy manner, in an irreverent way. So where I would like to begin is with a warning. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes as he looks back at the cross. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So what I know is, as I talk about the cross, there's going to be some people here that it sounds like utter foolishness. To others, it's the power of God to salvation. With that in mind and that framework, what I would like us to do is also keep another thing to frame in the cross for us as we look at it together this morning. Romans 5.8 says the following, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to read that again. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let me be completely honest when I think about this framework. What we have is we have a setup in Scripture whereby God the Father and God the Son are in some type of a pre-incarnate agreement, the Scriptures tell us, that Christ was crucified or sacrificed or made atonement before the foundations of the earth. So what's hinted to in Scripture is that God the Father, God the Son, somehow, some way, come to this agreement where if it goes off the rails, and Genesis 1 through 3 tell us it does, that pre-incarnate, that God the Father and God the Son have entered an agreement that if this thing goes sideways, that the Son will pay the price and give up his life. Let me explain something to you very carefully. I have one son. My son often reminds me that I, he is my one and only son. He says that quite frequently. By the way, for those of you that don't know the Newer Testament, maybe never read it, that's fine. But it literally says that of Jesus, that Jesus is God's one and only son. So when I look at that equation, God the Father, God the Son, humankind in their humanity, if they go off the rails, Jesus will sacrifice his life. And God will put all the sin of humanity on him. Let me be completely blunt. I have one son. There's zero chance I would sign my son up for that. Zero. Do you get what I'm saying? And what that teaches me is there's a depth of God's love that I don't understand. That's simply what it says to me. I have a love that's deep for my son. I would do anything for my son. But the reality of it is there's a humanness to my love for my son, Peter. 
And I promise you, if you came to me and said, look, here's how this thing's going to play out, I would say, not sorry, not interested. That would be from the Father. (laughs) I could already tell you what the Son would say. But again, what this does for me is that it frames the cross in a very unique way with a depth of love that I, in my humanness, don't understand but want to receive. I want to receive that. And so as we now move towards the cross, with the warning that to some it will be like foolishness, to others it'll be literally the cross will speak of the salvation of God for us, and that God demonstrates his love through the cross and Christ's death. We now approach the cross recognizing the following quick things. Here we go. The cross deals with sin, death, and the powers. I want to explain this. Last week, we looked at the death of Jesus. This week, we're going to talk about the cross and actually what it does according to Scripture. The first text is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Here's what the Scripture says. Peter, speaking of Jesus. He, meaning Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness, and by his wounds you have been healed. So what Peter is saying of Jesus is that on the cross, somehow Jesus bore our sins. Not just the people that were crucifying him, but us too. And then Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26 says the following, but he appeared once for all that the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. Then reading on in Colossians 2, 13 through 16, as we kind of have this biblical journey with the cross. Here's what the text says. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, basically meaning this, that one of the ways of framing a sinful heart in Scripture is an uncircumcised heart. So what's being said here is, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, and what does he do with it? He nails it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. When we look at Colossians 2, 13 through 16, I want to settle here just for a few moments. Here's what Paul writes. When you were dead in your sins. Here's the question. Here's something to think about. Can dead people help themselves? You're dead. You're dead. You need someone to come and rescue you and give you life. So what the scriptures is teaching is, is that Pete Hartwig has sinned. I am dead 
in my sin. Anything I try to do for myself to get out of sin, get away from the guilt and the shame, not gonna work. You wanna know why? I'm dead. I'm dead. I need someone to come and to give me life. And so the way Paul paints this picture is that I am dead in my sin. There's nothing I can do about it. What I do know of having dealt with people in our community for over 26 years now, meeting with people who are outside of faith, they will come to me and they'll begin to ask questions about being right with God. Often the question is, how do I get to heaven? And almost all people believe this. If I do enough good, I will get in. And my question's always the same. How do you know if you've done enough? Yeah, can't. And they say, oh, no, 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 it works like, well, if the pile of sand of my bad stuff is smaller than the pile of sand of my good stuff, then this outweighs that, and I'm in. Well, how do you know? You'll never will. It's a fool's errand. But what Scripture says is completely different. Scripture says that in your sin, you are dead. You can do nothing to revive yourself. You must have someone who comes to, rec- to rescue you. And the text that we have just read said that on the cross, Jesus does that. He does that. He who knew no sin does that for me and for you. Now, what I love about Paul's writings is he says the following, Pete, you're dead in your sin. The next thing he says this, though, is, Because of the cross, he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. Why is that such good news? And Paul, I think, with inspiration of the Holy Spirit, switches from the emotional reality of sin and starts talking about legal stuff. Why is that so important? Here's why it is. Very clearly here, got to get this. The forgiveness of sin is a legal announcement. It is not emotional. It's legal. Where if I come to Jesus and say, please forgive me, what the text says is, I'm dead, I'm condemned because of my sin. Jesus takes that sin and he, through faith in him, nails it to the cross. And in that moment, when I put my faith, hope, and trust in him, what the Father does is announces over me a legal declaration that I am no longer condemned. It's not emotional, it's a legal announcement. Why is that key? Here's why. Because some of you have wrestled with the idea of what Jesus has done for you on the cross because you've come and asked him that he would have done that for you. You've accepted it, but you don't feel it. And so you'll get up one morning and you don't feel forgiven. Let me explain this very carefully. It is not about how you feel. This is a legal, judicial announcement that God announces over you because of what Jesus did on the cross. Does this make sense? 
Because if you live by feelings, you will always be bunged up with guilt and shame. You just are going to be, because the flesh is going to crawl back into the equation. So what Paul does is just so genius. He shifts and goes straight into the legal, and he announces that God has forgiven you and canceled the charge of your legal indebtedness because Jesus took it and nailed it to the cross. There's another thing that Paul just wrote that happens on the cross. The first one, most of us are familiar with. It's what we've already talked about. This idea that I have sinned, I'm dead in my sins, can't rescue myself, someone has to come and rescue me and pay the price for my sin and remove it for me. Jesus does that on the cross. But as we already read, Paul tells us something else that happened when Jesus was on the cross. Rereading it, Colossians 2.15. While on the cross, here's what Paul says happened. This is huge. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross. What in the world does that mean? Well, listen, Jesus, the disciples, first century Christians, the New Testament writers, and Paul included, believed the following, and it's true. It's this, that here you have the kingdom of God, and over here you have the powers. And the powers oppose everything about the kingdom. Everything. Now, if you read Paul, it gets a little confusing because here he says the powers and the rulers and authorities put Jesus on the cross to make a spectacle of him. Because in Paul's writing, here's what he knows. And this ought to be a wake-up moment for some of us. Many people serve the powers unknowingly. Some do it knowingly. They've looked at the powers, said, I want to do that and knowingly have partnered with the powers. Others do it unknowingly. But they are under the power, and the power uses them. And so what Paul recognized and Jesus talked about, there are rulers and people in authority, people that exercise authority over others that are actually backed by the powers. So what Paul says with utter confidence is that on the cross, not just was sin taken care of, but the powers were taken care of too. This is key. What Paul writes is, is that the powers, here's other words for it, death, hell, sin, dysfunction, chaos, disease, brokenness, shame, guilt, fear, all of that is part of the powers. All of that comes at Jesus as he's placed on the cross. The powers come at him with everything they've got. The purpose for putting him there was to make a spectacle of him publicly and that the powers would prove that they had won. But what Paul says is, Jesus goes through that but he disarms them through death. 
Here's why. The ultimate weapon of the powers is death. It's the ultimate weapon. And what Paul is teaching us is that somehow, some way on the cross, the powers looked at the Son of God, had been waiting to meet him since Genesis chapter 3. And when they saw him, all of death, hell, sin, and the grave, and the powers go after God's Son, saying, we're going to kill him, we're going to hit him with our best shot. And when they do, Paul says he flips it. Jesus flips it and uses death against them. And death and through death, he triumphs over death. So front-facing, Jesus is on there for our sins. But what's happening behind the scenes, according to all the New Testament writers and Jesus, that the powers are being defeated through the cross. In other words, from that moment on, the powers are toothless in Jesus. That's why Paul goes on to write in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 37 and 39. He writes the following. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The powers were finally dealt with on the cross. So what we've done for the past 16 minutes as we have looked back in the rearview mirror at the cross. What I want to do before we break the bread together and we do it with reverence, with an understanding of who Jesus is and his broken body and his shed blood. What I would like to do now, instead of looking in the rearview mirror with the Newer Testament writers, I would like us to sit back 700 years before Jesus was born. 650 years before crucifixion ever came on the scene. I would like us to look now forward through the eyes of, and the writings of the prophet Isaiah as he looked into the future at the cross. My contention is, as under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was looking into the future. And when he did, he saw something. And when he did, he describes it this way. Please listen before we stand together. 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this. For we, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain, he bore our suffering. 
Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. Will you stand with me? As we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would take out the bread. And as you take out the bread, please hold it up before the Lord. If anyone has not been served and you would like to be served, just raise your hand. As you hold the bread up for the Lord... The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given it, given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a moment and let's, with reverence, think about what Jesus did for us on the cross. What has been judicially declared over our lives because of what he has done and that we put our faith in him. Jesus, thank you for your broken body. Let's eat together. And then take out the cup. Let's hold the cup up before the Lord. Paul goes on to say, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying... This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Jesus, we recognize what you have done for us what the cross has to say about us and say about you 
and say about the kingdom of God. Jesus, we thank you. Let's drink together. We take just a moment and close our eyes in God's presence. Jesus, thank you for the cross.